Good morning, Woodland Hills. My name is Dan Kent, and I am your pandemic pastor for the morning. We started a new series. I'm pulling up my slides here. Eh? For some reason, they weren't on. So if you can just give me a second while I deal with technical difficulties. There we go. Uh, hey, I'm so glad you're with us this morning. I'm excited to be here. I'm especially excited because we're starting a series that I'm very excited about. We're doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, Greg got us started a couple weeks ago. He's already done the first two Beatitudes. And today I will be talking about the third Beatitude, which uh, uh, in a sermon, I'm calling this sermon, I- I'm, I'm pretty happy with this title, Meek is the New Strong. It's probably not as clever as Good Morning from last week, but uh, I think it's pretty good anyway. Uh, But it's based on the third beatitude, which says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And uh, you might hear that and say, wow, that's pretty straightforward. And, and one of the dangers of the Beatitudes and anything from the Sermon on the Mount is we've probably heard it a lot of times and it's, it's become very familiar to us. And so you might be thinking, he's going to talk a whole sermon on blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Yes, I am, because I'm telling you there is a lot going on here in this verse. Uh, first of all, uh, when you look at it, you have to ask, well, what does this mean for me. Uh, you know, the, the meek will inherit the earth. I like the earth. I love this big blue ball of rotating fun. It's, it's great. I would love to inherit this place. I want a piece of this also. And so then you have to ask, well, if I'm going to inherit this, then I must have to have this meekness. And so you have to ask, what, what is that? Is that something that I can foster in myself? Uh, or is that something that just sort of happens to me? Um, or is it something that I'm born with? Those are the types of questions you have to ask. And the answer to those questions are yes, yes, and yes. Uh, and In other words, it's complicated. There's a lot of dimensions to this. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to just look at the word meek for a little bit just to get us going. And when you look at the word meek in the Greek, meek in the Greek, uh, there's a couple senses in which you can understand this word. The first sense, and the, the Greek word is praise, is how you pronounce it. Now that's the first century Greek. The, the modern Greek is praos, uh, apparently. That's what I've learned in my studies this week. But there are two senses of what this means. The first sense is sort of a proactive sense of meek. And this is when I develop meekness. That's what that is. And uh, when I soften my heart or when I disarm myself, when I become non-threatening, when I'm just kind of tolerant and peaceful and uh, easy to be around, that's this sort of meekness. Jesus uh, proclaims that he has this meekness in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29 when he says, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle is what the NIV says. But I want to go to the King James Version and the King James Version says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Uh, and so the, the, the King James interprets praes as meek there. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of translations will translate that as gentle because it's this proactive sense of meek that uh, the text is talking about. The other sense of praes is 
totally different. Uh, The other sense is sort of a passive meekness. This is a meekness that happens to me. This is what happens when I'm imprisoned in a hostile sort of prison or if I'm uh, uh, traumatically abused or if I'm the victim of systemic oppression. I have this sort of meekness. It's sort of a disempowered, humiliated sort of meekness. It's very different. And Jesus also experienced this meekness when he was humiliated on the cross. And so these are two totally different understandings of what meek is and it's used in two totally different ways. So the question is, is which one of these ways is Jesus talking about in Matthew 5.5? Is it the proactive meekness or is it the passive meekness? Is it the meekness that happens to me or the one that I build in myself? I'm going to argue that it's the second one. I'm going to argue that it's the passive meekness. Uh, And I'm going to give my reasons for this in a little bit. But what my argument is, is that we should read this text as, blessed are the humiliated, for they will inherit the earth. Or, blessed are the humbled, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, And if that's the right translation, which I think it is, Well, (laughs) that leads to another problem for me Uh, because if that's the case, then if you are humbled, then there's a blessing for you. So it seems like being humbled is a good thing. But then later on, like 15 chapters later, it seems like being humbled is a bad thing. If you go to to, uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, Jesus says those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So now in this case, being humbled doesn't seem like such a good thing after all. So the question is, is is it good to be humbled or not? Uh, This is sort of the the interpretive dominoes that you get when you try to interpret the Bible. You come to a conclusion here, but then you run into a problem there. And for me, uh, this problem is compounded uh, because, well, I spent about eight years writing a book called Confident Humility. And in that book, I argue that it's really great when we humble ourselves, but it's not great when we are humbled. And so I spent almost a decade writing this book saying that it's not great to be humbled. And then here comes the third beatitude saying that you're blessed if you're humbled. Can you see my conundrum? People see me walking on the street and they say, Dan, what's wrong? And I say, Ah, the third beatitude is laughing at me again. That's what I say. Woe is me. No, it is a conundrum, but I think there's a solution to it. Uh, You see, with biblical and theological conundrums like this, sometimes they're based on just the fact that you're wrong about the text. Uh, But sometimes there's a hidden treasure there. Sometimes there's a deeper truth there. And if you attack that problem earnestly and diligently, a lot of times you can find hidden treasure. And I tell you, we have such a great model of that here at Woodland Hills Church. Uh, Greg Boyd has been such a good model of that kind of persistent, stubborn, theological treasure hunting. And it's such a blessing to to have him around. And, And it's an inspiration. And so as I attack this problem, hopefully with that same perseverance, I think that I can solve this conundrum and I think that there's hidden treasure. So that's what I would like to show you. I'd like to show you how I have solved this and and the treasure that I think I found here. In fact, uh, the first treasure, I think, is if you understand what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 23, when he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted, I think that that brings all sorts of insight into what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 5. So that's what I want to do. I want to look at Matthew 23 and then go back to Matthew 5, 5, our third beatitude. Now, Matthew 23, 12 uh, 
blessed, or I'm already in the wrong one. Uh, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's at the end of this little chunk of text in Matthew 23. And uh, theologians call these little chunks of text pericopes. And I only say that because I really like that word pericope. <laughs> and so Jesus concludes this pericope with this statement that says, if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. And I think what Jesus is doing in that pericope is I argue that he's telling us what his view of humility is. What does it mean to be humble? And as you study this, what you find is that just like meekness, there's two senses of humility. And I think this is probably true with most virtues. There's two senses of humility. When I humble myself, that's very different than when somebody else humbles me. When I humble myself, that's humility. That's a good thing. When somebody else humbles me, that's humiliation. That's this sort of holistic feeling of inferiority. That's not a good thing. And what Jesus invites us into in Matthew 23 is he wants us to to, move into that proactive humbling. He wants us to humble ourselves. He doesn't want us to be humiliated. God wants us to do it. He wants us to make it our own. And, uh, and that's the goal, I think, that Jesus has um, in his teaching. But it's tough because so often we hear teachings about humility that are actually the other kind of humility, actually lead to the passive type of humility where we end up in humiliation. And sometimes that teaching even comes in church. A lot of times humility is taught something like this, where humility is conceived of as the opposite of pride in sort of this up-down sort of way, where pride is the enemy. Pride being like uh, uh, kind of pro-self and thinking big about yourself and being positive about yourself is sort of the enemy and humility is the opposite of that. So if you want to be humble, you have to go downwards. You have to think small about yourself. You have to think negative about yourself. And, um, And there's something that seems right about this, in all honesty, because If you think about it, it's really hard to think of a person who's both humble and arrogant. And so there's definitely something that's that's right about this. But there's also something I think that's very wrong about this because, well, if Jesus tells us to be humble, then we want to be humble. And we want to be as humble as we can be. And the only way to get more humility is to get more small and more negative and more deplorable and think worse and worse about yourself. And see how that leads to sort of this race to the bottom, this sort of uh, downwardness? It sort of glorifies downwardness. And this is why I call this the ditch of smallness because it just sucks you down smaller and smaller and smaller. The more you grow in this type of humility, the smaller you view yourself. And, um, and I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. I think what Jesus is saying is that humility is not the opposite of, of pride. Shame is the opposite of pride. Uh, humility looks more like this, where humility is contrary to both shame and pride. Uh, humility is the opposite of whatever it is that creates shame and pride. That's what humility is. Uh, and, and this humility is grounded. It's a very secure sense, whereas shame and pride are very insecure states. But humility is profoundly secure, especially humility in Christ, grounded on God's unsurpassable love for us. But there's a second implication of this that's very important to what we're going to talk about today. And a lot of people miss this. Uh, and, and it comes out of the fact that both shame and pride are social dysfunctions. Uh, 
Uh, when I feel shame, it's not just about me, it's about me relative to somebody else. Uh, when I feel arrogant, it's not just about me, it's about me relative to somebody else. And so uh, you could also say that, that humility looks like this, where uh, superiority is the opposite of inferiority. But humility is the opposite of both because humility is about being brothers and sisters. It's about being uh, unsurpassably equal. This is from uh, Matthew 23, 8, where Jesus says, uh, don't put anybody above you, don't put anybody below you, for you are all brothers and sisters. You are all unsurpassably equal. And that unsurpassable equality makes total logical sense if you think about it. Because if it's true that we have unsurpassable love from God, uh, that means that we have to be unsurpassably equal. Because if God loves me with an unsurpassable love, and if he loves you with an unsurpassable love, that means that he can't love Margot more than he loves us. Because if he loved Margot more than he loved us, then his love for you and me would have been surpassable. So God's unsurpassable love for us implies that we are unsurpassably equal. And the reason why humility then totally neutralizes inferiority and superiority is because inferiority and, and superiority don't make any sense if everybody is unsurpassably equal. And if superiority and inferiority don't make any sense, neither do shame and pride. And in that way, humility, as Jesus teaches it in Matthew 23, totally liberates us from shame and pride, which is big because so often we fight against one or the other. One group fights against arrogance, the other group fights against shame, and there's a lot of good work done in both of those fights, but if you don't have a framework that transcends both shame and pride, you end up just moving from one ditch to the other. Jesus provides this framework, and it takes the, really, it does, it takes the power the, out of uh, dysfunction because shame and pride are like dysfunction steroids. They, they, each of them, they will amplify your addictions, they will amplify your depression, your anxieties, and uh, the more we grow into humility, the more we take the power out of both of those. But not only that, but this understanding of humility, I think, also helps us make sense of what Jesus is saying in Matthew uh, 5, 5, in the third beatitude. And because uh, now you have these two understandings of humility, this ditch of smallness understanding of humility and this view of humility that I propose Jesus is teaching. And watch what happens when you go back to the beatitude with each of these. It really shows you that uh, what you bring to a text really matters almost as much as what the text says itself. Because if you come to it with the framework of the ditch of smallness and you're trying to get as small as you can and you're trying to conceive yourself as insignificantly as you can and be as negative as, as you can and, and think of yourself as despicable as you can even to the point where you just loathe yourself and that's your goal because that's your understanding of humility and then you come to this text that says blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. You're immediately gonna see that and say yes, God rewards those who belittle themselves and, and you're gonna say see it's the smallness that matters to God. And that's what you're going to say because that's what you're bringing to the text. But watch what happens. I mean, and that sounds religious too. I mean, I, I, no doubt about it. You've probably heard stuff like that. But I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching. It's not the meekness that Jesus is looking for. That's not the type that he's looking for. Uh, in fact, I don't even think that's meekness at all. I think that that's shame, really. It's just shame masquerading itself as meekness. And that's how... Uh, you know, the ditch of smallness or other bad theology a lot of times can bulldoze over uh, the kind of nuance and beauty of the good news that Jesus is bringing. And I think that we can see that when we look at how 
bringing Jesus' understanding of humility to this text really opens up the text in a a much more beautiful way. Um, Because if it's true that we are all unsurpassably equal, then there is no room for inferiority. The meek that Jesus is talking about here are not those who loathe themselves. No, uh uh-uh. The meek here, it's a different form of meekness here. The meek that Jesus is talking about in, in the third beatitude are those who have been humiliated by a ferociously ungodly world. It's those who have been falsely humiliated by this this totally ungodly world. It's those who have been oppressed by others. It's those who have been um, taken advantage of and abused by people and systems that um, are totally ungodly. What Jesus is bringing is good news for people whose only wealth is bad news. (laughs) They're rich in bad news and Jesus is bringing them good news. Uh, And you can see that this is the, the version of meekness that Jesus is using because he quotes his beatitude almost directly from Psalm 37. And when you read the context of Psalm 37, you really see what Jesus is getting at here, I think. Uh, In Psalm 37, verses 10 through 15, it says this, a little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts, and their bows will be broken. Those are the people whom the good news of the third beatitude is for is those who the wicked have abused and humiliated and oppressed. Uh, The world... See, uh, if it's true that we are all unsurpassably equal, that's not how the world operates. The world operates under a totally different belief system. The world operates under a delusion that some people are better than others. That's how, that's how we think. We think that some people are better than others. And that belief leads to so many injustices and so many different oppressions and it leads to humiliation and all sorts of indignities. But the good news here is that even though the pain of oppression and the pain of injustice is real, the humiliation and the indignity is not based on anything real. It feels real when you're, when you're stuck in the system. It feels real and those feelings are real but the humiliation is false. It's kind of like, um, well, my grandpa, my grandpa lost an arm uh, to a, a, a farm equipment. I'm trying to say this without being gross, but he lost his arm to some farm equipment, and I didn't know him when he had two arms. I, ever since I knew him, he was the one-armed bandit. That was his CB name. And, um, and sometimes he would get so like frustrated and, and it looked like for nothing. It looked like he was frustrated. He was just sitting there all saying, he'd start mumbling like that. And I would say, Grandpa, what's wrong? And he would say, my hand itches. And it was the hand that he lost. And his brain was telling him that it itched. And it just, it drove him crazy. And the itch felt real, but it was not real because there was no hand there to be itched. I had another example. Um, uh, I worked in a, a mental health institute where uh, we worked with psychotic patients and people with delusions. And we had this one patient who, she, and we noticed that she was drinking a lot of water, like a, a crazy amount of water. Uh, gallons of it, and um, and we were concerned because we didn't want her to flush her her medications, and so we found out eventually that the reason why she was drinking this water was because she was afraid that her organs would catch on fire if she didn't keep herself hydrated enough, and 
And, but the problem is, is we needed to keep the medications in her, so we had to turn her water off in her room and we had to limit how much water she could have, which felt to her like this was threatening her life. Like we were, we were attacking her, like we wanted her to spontaneously combust. Um, and that, those feelings that she had were very real, but it was all based on an untruth. And that's sort of what Jesus is saying here is that the world falsely humiliates people. And those who have been falsely humiliated by the world, they now have a witness and this witness is going to overthrow all of the humiliators and all of these systems of false humiliation Uh, one day soon we're going to see how ridiculous these humiliators are and just how perfectly adequate the humiliated have always been and so when you look at these two verses in Matthew 23, 12, where it says, if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. And that seems like a bad thing. And then you look at uh, Matthew 5, 5, where it says the humbled are blessed. The reason why both of those make sense is because we're talking about two different types of humiliation here. Uh, in 5, 5, in the Beatitude, you're blessed because you have been falsely humiliated. The humiliation was based on a world that is totally ungodly and it's not justifiable. Whereas when you go to 23.12, when you exalt yourself and you're humbled, that's your sin that's causing the humiliation. That's a justified humiliation that God uses to help shape our character. And so, What Jesus is saying here, I think, is that there are three categories we could be in. The category that God wants us in is the category where uh, we humble ourselves. That's what he wants. That's the best place to be. Humble yourselves. The next category is what we find in Matthew 5, 5, in the third beatitude, which are those people who have been falsely humiliated by this ungodly world. Those people will be blessed. The good news for them is that the false humiliation will be exposed and they will be exalted back to their proper place. This doesn't mean that they're, they're righteous. This doesn't mean that if you're oppressed, you're godly. This doesn't mean that you're off the hook from all expectations of morality or anything like that. If you're oppressed or if you've been abused, man, there's a temptation to just dwell in that abuse and dwell in that victimhood and just think that, well, I'm good because I experienced this. I, I, I don't have to do anything. But that's not true. God loves you more than that. God wants you still to grow into humility. He still wants you to humble yourselves because if you've been abused and if you've been oppressed, the temptation is to have uh, anger and vengeance and hostility toward the world. God doesn't want that either. So you still have work to do even though you're blessed here. The third category is not blessed. (laughs) The third category are those people who have not humbled themselves, nor has the world humiliated them. Those tend to be people who kind of thrive off the way the world is. Uh, They kind of thrive off of this delusion of inequality. They benefit from the way things are. Uh, As C.S. Lewis put it, these people, they think that they are growing into the world, when in reality, it's the world that's growing into them. And Jesus' call to humble yourselves, it's most urgent for these people. It's most urgent for the people in this third group because the reality is when Jesus says you are all brothers and sisters, you are all unsurpassably equal, he doesn't say pretend like you are brothers and sisters. He says you are all brothers and sisters. This unsurpassable equality, this is reality. This is the way things are. The inequality is unreality. That's a delusion. And, and, and he wants us to live into this reality. And if we don't proactively live into the reality of our unsurpassable equality, that equality, that reality will impose itself on us. And God would like to have us avoid that. It's not that God is looking to punish us for not being humble. He's not trying to 
humiliate us if we're, we're doing wrong. I think it's sort of like, well, Greg talks about how, how um, death is built into sin. I also think this humiliation is built into sin. Uh, and the way I like to think about it is I like to think about what is God trying to do here on this planet? Uh, and I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to dwell with his people. He's, from the very beginning, God has desired to dwell with us in this eternal agape love community. And you find that in, in Genesis, you find that in Exodus, you find that even up into Acts, that God just wants to be with us. And um, that's not easy to do. That's advanced citizenship. Trying to live in an eternal agape love relationship with God dwelling among you, you have to have the right kind of abilities. You have to have the right heart. You have to have the right skill to do that. Um, and, and so that's what God is trying to do. He's trying to call together brothers and sisters who are compatible with an eternal agape love relationship. It's not about being good boys and good girls. It's about being compatible with God's vision. Um, and, and so, for instance, I mean, it's not that, you know, God says, don't be greedy because greed is bad. That's not the point. The point is, is in this kingdom, in this uh, eternal agape relationship, greed just doesn't work there. And, and so he's telling us not to be greedy because it's not going to work. And it's kind of like, you know, on earth, if there's a, a pie and there are five slices, you could be greedy and you could take four of the slices for yourself and leave one for everybody else. But if you're in a place where there are infinite amounts of pie and you're trying to be greedy, you're going to look really funny trying to take 6,000 pies and running away from the community while there's still an infinite amount of pies back there. It's going to look ridiculous. That's how humiliation is built into sin. Murder is the same way. It's, it's not only that murder is bad. It's just that murder doesn't work where we're going. And, and, and so you have to have a different set of skills for dealing with your problems. And you see this... Um, Boy, there's this movie, Bruxy, if you watch this, you'll be proud of me. There's a movie from the early 80s called Creep Show. And it's just a collection of short stories, this movie, and, and written by Stephen King. And one of these short stories, a guy played by Leslie Nielsen kills these lovers. And these lovers come back as zombies and they want to get their revenge on Leslie Nielsen. Richard is his name in the, in the movie. And, uh, and so they're coming after Richard and, and Richard is cornered by these zombies and he pulls out this gun and he starts shooting the zombies and he's just unloading gun, fire, boom, 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 bullet after bullet into these zombies and the zombies just keep coming and you can hear one of them say, you can't kill us, Richard. We're already dead. And he's just like, ah, boom, 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 until you hear click, 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 and then it's over for Richard. <laughs> and that's the way it's going to be in heaven. We're not going to be zombies like that. But what are you going to do in heaven when, when all you've learned in life is how to deal with your problems with violence and hostility and suddenly you're surrounded by people who are immune to violence and hostility? You better start learning some other skills. You better start learning some of those skills. Now, God wants you to skip all of these future humiliations and live into humility now. Uh, view yourself and each other the way that the Bible reveals you and others to be as unsurpassably equal. Join God now in his fight to overthrow the false humiliators and all of the systems of false humiliation in this present darkness that we are in. I want to leave with three practical takeaways from this beatitude. The first one is uh, to live as an heir. Uh, you know, it's so fascinating that the blessing in this verse is that 
there's an inheritance. Because so often the humiliated in the world are humiliated under the feet and because of the bent hearts of this world as they seek to conquer and to take and to trick and to do whatever duplicitous thing they can do to take what they want. And, and the world, people just become so domineering and so tyrannical and so hostile. And it's just so beautiful that God uses inheritance as the blessing for the people who are the victim of something that is really the opposite of inheritance. Inheritance is this free gift that God just pours on us, whereas the world tends to try to take and to conquer what they want. And, and God really just mocks the world here by just giving the poor and the oppressed the thing that all these violent bozos did to oppress them. I just think that's the most beautiful thing. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children of God, then we are also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs. Uh, James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. And if we can live into that truth that we have an inheritance, that we are heirs, boy, that's a totally different orientation to the world. That It's one that I'm not really... I'm not really there yet. Uh, it's, it's, I'm still kind of stuck in you, what you do is you work a job and you just buy the things that you want and you go after it. And that's how the world is. The world tends to hustle for things and to try to earn and to fight for whatever that they want. And there's sort of a spiritual sunk cost that gets done there that changes our orientation to things. It, it, it's sort of like if I devote so much effort and toil to get this thing that I want, now suddenly I'm going to be more protective of it. I'm going to be more possessive of it. I'm going to be clingy and selfish about this thing. Look how much I've done to get this thing. And um, that's just a different orientation. But when we can live into the rich blessing of God's love for us and when we can live in trust of this kingdom to come and this inheritance to come, I think, I hope, as I grow this way, I hope that it also then makes me be not so obsessive and grabby about things. And, and it makes it that, that I can sort of share more easily because it's all a gift. Even, even the stuff that I earned through work, the skills that I used to get that stuff was still a gift to begin with. And so maybe as I take on this inheritance mentality, maybe I can kind of relax and lighten up about my things. And I can kind of unclench my fists about everything and sort of live more with open palms. And I think that's what this third beatitude is inviting us to consider for ourselves. The second thing is we can now boast about our weaknesses. And uh, the title of this sermon, uh, I titled it Meek is the New Strong. It was inspired by my friend Todd's new book. It just came out this week called Weak is the New Strong. And uh, Todd has cerebral palsy and he writes in this book about how he has learned to profit from this weakness. And, uh, and he asks this question and it's such a good question. Imagine being publicly defined by your greatest weakness. It's such a good question because, listen, we all have weaknesses and flaws. We've got tons of them. But most of us, we get pretty good at hiding them. <laughs> most of us, when we meet people, they have no clue what our weaknesses and flaws are. And we, we get really good at sort of that, that counterintelligence. And, uh, but some people can't hide their weaknesses, like Todd. When Todd comes in and he, if he's walking in, you can tell that there's something not right there because his cerebral palsy causes his muscles to not work quite right so he walks sort of awkward, uh, so much so that a lot of times he takes a wheelchair just so that he can be accommodating to others. And, um, 
And, and the, the problem is, is that in this world, especially in this world of inequality where we think that some people are better than others, uh, they tend to fear weaknesses in that delusion. If that's your delusion, you're gonna fear weakness and you're going to fear weakness and you're gonna exalt power and you're gonna step on and use and oppress and humiliate weakness. And what happens is you start to see weakness and you start to infer something deeper about that weakness. You infer that a person who has weaknesses also must be somehow less good underneath. They must somehow be less worthy or less lovable even. Uh, But as we grow in humility, as we grow into God's unsurpassable love and our unsurpassable equality, we can see that this is ridiculous. We can see that weaknesses are nothing to be afraid of because in the world, the the least effective person in the world, and I'm, I'm assuming it's a he and I'm sure he's somewhere, the very least effective person in the world, is loved with the same unsurpassable love as the very most effective person in the world. Weaknesses don't really mean that much. You don't have to be pushed around by your weaknesses. In fact, you can kind of like acknowledge your weaknesses and embrace your brokenness and you can profit off them even. You can find benefits to your weaknesses and then you'll find gratitude and we know that gratitude is the great antidote to so many evils. Uh, One example that I always think about when I think about this Barbara and I, we have a tradition that uh, I just love so much. We've been doing this for like 12 years now. But every Sunday at 7 o'clock, we watch Columbo. (laughs) And uh, Columbo is sort of this old detective show. And uh, uh, Columbo is a homicide detective, and he's sort of a bumbling klutz. And and that's a real weakness. He really is this bumbling klutz, and he's a total slob. And he's, he's doing his homicide detective work with all of these Hollywood celebrity types. And so when people see him, they see him at, as his weakness. He's this bumbling slob. And what happens is, even though that's a legitimate weakness, what happens is that it causes people to lower their guard around him and, and because he's not very threatening. They don't take him seriously because he doesn't portray himself in that way. And what happens then is these killers end up revealing things to him because their guard is low that they probably shouldn't and it ends up uh, catching them. And, uh, and so that's one example of how we can just sort of profit off of our weakness. Second um, Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 says this. Paul says that God said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, Paul says, for Jesus' sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, <laughs> the world, when you believe that some people are better than others, it leads to all sorts of really awful logic. And part of boasting about our weaknesses and part of growing into this humble meekness that the Bible calls us to is that God wants us to be a counter-argument to that awful logic. And, and in this world where there's so much opportunistic judgment, there's so much um, kind of just really nasty how we treat each other, we, we uh, belittle one another and we try to one-up everybody, the call to live into this unsurpassable equality really is a call to be an alternative community to that. And so part of boasting about our weaknesses is to be uh, a counter-argument to the awful logic and to be a beautiful uh, alternative community to sort of this horrible community that we have been raised in. The third and final takeaway I want to say is to seek to be known. 
Uh, in this world where some people are viewed as better than others, there's a lot of pressure to move up because if some people are better than others, that means there's a hierarchy and there are consequences. You're treated differently if you're perceived up here versus if you're perceived down here. And that sort of forces us all to kind of hype ourselves and to propagandize ourselves and to hide our flaws. And that might sort of work and you might get some leverage within this delusional system, but the better you get at that, the more you sort of lose touch with who you really are. You lose touch with yourself and, uh, and you get so wrapped up in your avatar of what you want people to think of you that you lose touch with who you actually are. But God doesn't care about our avatar. God wants to know who we really are. Uh, that's what God is interested in. And the more that we live in the security of God's unsurpassable love and the more we live into this unsurpassable equality, the less we have to always prove ourselves, the less we have to hype ourselves or PR ourselves or to sell ourselves. Uh, we can simply be ourselves. We can just be ourselves. Now, there are some practical considerations, of course. Uh, if you're trying to get a new job, you might want to put some of your positive features on your resume. You know, there's probably some practical things like that. Uh, but I don't know, maybe not. Uh, I, uh, I was thinking about this. I, I don't know, like 10 years ago, I learned how to program in a programming language called Ruby on Rails. And I thought, well, you know, this is kind of fun. Maybe I could do this. I didn't know what I was doing with my life. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll get a job at this programming place and I could kind of learn more and get paid to learn. And, and so I applied for this job that was way above my skill set, you know. And I turned in my resume and I totally got rejected because I just wasn't there. I'm, I'm not even close to qualified. But the HR person said that my resume was the best resume she had ever seen. And I didn't know what I was doing. I just put on the resume, I did what I did over the last 10 years, and I put everything that I succeeded at and everything that I failed at. And she said that she had never seen anybody put on their resume their failures. And she said that it was so great because it gave her more of a full picture of the type of person I am because I put on there the things that I learned from my failures. And I think that people hunger for that. People are so sick of the two-dimensional selves that they see where we only see people's bright side, where we only see people's positives. We hunger for an authentic encounter where we see people in their three-dimensional fullness. So uh, even here in this world, I think there's something to, you know, not hiding all of your weaknesses all the time, being more authentic. And the more we live in the security of God's unsurpassable love, the more we can do that. The less we have to hustle and toil to be liked. And we can just simply and joyfully seek to be known as we are, and I think that's a beautiful thing. We would also like to get to know you a little bit more, and we have a few opportunities for that. Uh, we have some gathering groups on uh, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and there should be information on the screen for that. Also, if you have any prayer needs, uh, we have some online prayer support that you can take advantage of, and that should be on the screen as well. And uh, last, but certainly not least, uh, on Tuesdays at four o'clock our time, I don't know where you are, uh, we have something called the MuseCast, and Shauna and Oshida and I will break down the last week's sermon and we'll answer questions and we just have a really good time. Uh, in, last weekend it was very silly so uh, it, sometimes it gets a little silly but it's really fun and uh, there's so much wisdom uh, with Oshida and Shauna and I encourage you to, to check that out and listen to it. Thanks everybody for giving me your attention and I hope to see you in person sometime soon.